Thanks for listening to the Toronto Legends Podcast. I am your host, Andrew Applebaum. My guest today is Steve McAllister. Steve has had an over 40-year career in newspapers, public relations, communications, digital media, and is now at the center of Canada's burgeoning sports betting and gaming industry. He is the editor-in-chief of Gaming News Canada, a weekly newsletter on the sports betting industry, as well as a partner with digital content creators, the Parlay Media Group. Steve has had an amazing journey in sports with a front row seat to the transition from traditional to digital media, and he is also uniquely qualified to provide us with a nice primer on the state of sports gambling in Ontario, past, present, and future. Welcome, Steve, to Toronto Legends. Thank you for joining me. Where are you and how are you? Hey, great, Andrew, and it's a, it's a thrill to be uh, to be on your podcast. Um, I'm a fan of podcasts, obviously follow it on the various social media platforms, so it's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, and yes, I moved, uh, my newspaper career started in 1981 in Concordia, Ontario, a little little town about three hours northwest of uh, Toronto on, on Lake Huron. I moved back up here to take a corporate affairs contract at Bruce Power back in 2018, um, a year later, my wife Julie and I we decided we didn't we didn't like being apart from each other during a week. She retired as an ultrasonographer from Brampton Civic Hospital. <clears throat> we sold our house in Caledon and uh, moved back up to Concord. And so we're uh, hopefully we're we're here to we're here to stay. In light of what happened with the COVID nineteen pandemic, it's, it's been a nice place to uh, to call home for the last uh, last four years. Well, I was going to ask you now in this post COVID world whether you work from the home or the office, clearly, you I guess you're working from home. Do you still go into an office? Is it a hybrid situation or can you do most of your work from home now? Yeah, I would say 97% of my work is done here in the basement of my, uh, of my concarden, concarden home. Andrew, I, I do get down to, uh, I, I do miss the office environment. So I, I try to get down to Toronto every every couple of months and uh, and spend a day with, with the people at Parley Media Group. You might know we have studios just north of Yorkdale in Toronto, so it's it's nice to go down there and hang out with the with the much younger people who are doing the the great work on on homestand sports and and as you know, just the beauty of having Slack and and email and texting these days. I mean, I'm you know I probably talk to Mark Silver, the founder of Parley Media Group. We probably talk to each other half a dozen times a day. So it's not like I'm holed up in my basement, you know, not not talking to anybody else in the world. Well, it's a, whole, it's a whole new world. It's certainly different than when you began your career. Let's take this opportunity to jump right into your background, go all the way back. You alluded to it a bit. Please talk about where you were born. Describe your upbringing, please. I was born in Brockville, Ontario, in eastern Ontario, um, about an hour east of Kingston. Moved to Prescott 12 miles down the road, or, or what is it, kilometers, 20 kilometers down the road, I guess, when I was five years old. Uh, so grew up in a town of 5,000 people, big advocate of living in, in a small town, played played a lot of sports. My mom and dad were quite active in the sports community. My dad was a, a high-level referee, um, refereed the Ontario Hockey League for a couple of years, was an American Hockey League linesman for a year when, when Vancouver and St. Louis shared an AHL franchise in Syracuse, New York, which is about two and a half hour drive from Prescott. Decided, I think, in grade eleven, that, you know, kept looking at my math and science marks. Andrew, I realized that I probably there wasn't a career for me in, in as an engineer or, or in the maths and sciences. And but I loved, uh, I loved reading. I loved English. I, I loved languages and history. And made the decision really in grade eleven that I was going to be a sports writer. I think, like all people who dream of being a journalist one day, I'm sure my dream was to be a beat writer for the Toronto Maple Leafs one day. But 
uh, was lucky enough to get accepted into the journalism program at, at the Toronto Metropolitan University now, but Ryerson Polytechnical S2 back then did a three-year Bachelor of Arts program in journalism and, and then started my, my career in Kincardine in 1981, as I mentioned. Well, as you note, reporter, photographer at the Kincardine News. And what's interesting, and you just mentioned it, while working in Kincardine, you also got back into officiating hockey, which you had done growing up in Prescott. You talked about your father, Lionel, refereeing games in the Ontario Hockey League and the American Hockey League as a linesman. I understand for you, though, this return to officiating led to an invitation to attend the NHL officiating evaluation session at Maple Leaf Gardens. That must have been kind of an exciting time. Yeah, I've, I've, I've been very lucky, Andrew, as an official. And, and uh, you know, not, I don't want to bore your listeners with too much detail, but we had some really good mentors growing up in Prescott for a small town. You know, to have my father, who was was refereeing at a really high level back in the days when Dennis Potvin was playing for the Ottawa 67s, and Leo Boyd in the Hockey Hall of Famer was was coaching the 67s, and other other men, you know, Bernie Currier, Charlie McCready, Vince Vince Bono, uh, those people were instrumental in not only developing me but other young officials in in our hometown. And then when I went to Ryerson, I took uh, I, I took three years off from officiating. Uh, when I moved to Concordia in '81, decided to get back into it, and was lucky enough to uh, to have a mentor, Clark Pollock, whose son Kevin is not only an NHL referee now, but Kevin's a guy who's had an incredible career—20, 20, 22 years in the league, he's refereed over 1,500 regular season games and 200 plus playoff games. So thanks to Clark, I had a chance to work a lot of great hockey. Um, the Stratford Cullitons in 1982-83 had a young young man by the name of Ed Olchuk who, who set the Midwestern Ontario Junior B Hockey League scoring championship. Uh, I had a chance to referee him right through the finals when Stratford played the Henry Carr Crusaders who had uh, Bob Asenza in goal. And Scott Mellenby was one of the forwards on that team. And Victor Poza, who would eventually become a Washington Capitals draft pick, was on that team. I uh, was lucky enough to go with Clark to Cambridge in 1983 to work the Allen Cup final, which is the National Senior Hockey Championship. And I think, you know, refereeing not only was not always satisfying being on the ice, Andrew, but it just opened the door to a lot of my relationships and my, my journalism career. You know, I got to know uh, Brent Lads, who was the president of the Ontario Hockey Association at the time. And eventually, as you know, my, my newspaper year cooked took me to Georgetown, the Tobacco, and, and covering junior B hockey teams, and then eventually going to the Canadian Press and, and later as sports editor of the Globe and Mail and working at Yahoo Canada. Um, those relationships I would have to come back to when a reporter was working on a story, and I would say, hey, you should give Brent Lodz a call at the OHA. And because of that relationship that I had as, as an official, it, it usually uh, made things a little bit easier for reporters to uh, to speak with people like, like that. But I, I can't say enough. Well, it's great that you're able to combine your love of journalism and then, as you say, still stay on the ice and stay connected to hockey. As you mentioned, in 1988, you joined the Canadian Press, covered the CFL for two seasons, and then moved over to cover the Toronto Blue Jays, where you were the national baseball writer for their back-to-back World Series championships, 1992 and 1993. There must be tons of memories of those title runs, but anything in particular, Steve, that stood out for you? Yeah, I mean... The relationship thing again, Andrew. I, I had uh, Scott White was a third year journalism student at Ryerson when I was a first year student, and I happened to play ball hockey for the uh, for the intramural journalism ball hockey team that Scott White was the captain of. And 
So that relationship, I ran into Scott at the, I was covering the Pan American Games in 1987 in Indianapolis for the Metroland newspaper chain at that time. Ran into Scott, who was a sports editor at CP by that point. Um, I mentioned to Scott that I'd been working in weekly newspapers for about seven years, and I thought I was ready to take take the big step. And about less than 12 months later, Scott called me and said they had a job opening for a reporter editor. So December 1988 was a bit of a whirlwind for me. That sorry, November 1988. That was the uh, that was the month that uh, the Julie and I got married. Went on our honeymoon for two weeks in Dominican and came back. And I started at Canadian Press eventually. Covered the CFL for two years, as you mentioned. Got really tremendous break when Tom Maloney, who was CP's baseball writer at the time, took a job in San Diego with the with the newspaper there. Um, I moved into the National B writer spot and and just you know three arguably through the three greatest years in franchise history. The the Jays went to the American League Championship Series and lost to Minnesota in 1991, so I had a chance to cover that. And then obviously covering the back-to-back World Series in, in 92 and, and 93. And, you know, just a few memories. I, I always tell, I, I joke with people that covering spring training is the best gig in, in sports journalism to, you know, be in Florida in, in late February and March when it's pretty cold back here in, in Ontario and, and being you know, in shorts and a t-shirt standing around the batting cage on a, on a Wednesday morning, that's, that's a pretty nice place to, uh, to be. I really treasure, uh, I had a lot of respect for Cito Gaston. The actual seasons of grind and what was really nice about spring training is it's a lot more relaxed and uh, the ball players and the manager aren't sick of the media yet and the media aren't sick of the players and the manager. And I used to really enjoy just being in the dugout with other writers and talking to Cito. And Cito's got a fascinating story. He was a guy who played in the majors when there was still segregation and, you know, players having to sleep in, black players having to eat in different restaurants and, and sleeping in different hotels. And Hank Aaron was Cito's roommate. And I, Hank Aaron was my childhood hero growing up. I, I had 40, 44 on as many jerseys as I could as a baseball player or a hockey player. And so I, I really enjoyed just having those conversations that weren't about baseball, that were that were just about life, talking with, with Cito and, you know, people like Dave Perkins and Bob Elliott and, and Neil Campbell, my, my great friend from the Globe and Mail, love those days. And then, of course, being at the being at the Fulton County Stadium at Land in 92 when Otis Nixon's blank gets swept up by Mike Timlin, he throws a Joe Carter for the third out and seeing the Jays win the World Series and being in that clubhouse and getting sprayed with champagne and seeing how happy those guys were. That was fun. I do remember a moment in that series. I think it was game two. Ed Sprague had the game-winning home run in game two to even the series. And I happened to be walking through the through the bowels of the stadium after the game. And Ed's married to uh, Kristen Babsprague, who was an American Olympics synchronized swimmer, and them, them sharing a big hug and a kiss. And that was a really cool moment. And then you go to 1993 when Joe Carter hits uh, the touch them all Joe home run to, to beat the Phillies in the World Series. And being kind of at the clubhouse entrance when Joe Carter walked in after doing some interviews on the field. And Joe Carter wasn't exactly the nicest guy. Like, uh, one of these guys that when the cameras I came across as this really, you know, great, wonderful guy. And he had a different person, I think, once the cameras got turned off, as sometimes happens with pro athletes. But Carter walked in the room and had this just like look, dazed look on his face that he still really couldn't believe what he had what he had done. And I don't think the moment had, had suck in suck in with him yet. And I think just you know I I, I love baseball, so I think just being a batting cage. I, I I used to love sitting around the cage where Larry Heisel was the Blue Jays batting instructor and just talking to Larry and 
always enjoyed watching John Olerud hit in batting practice. I, I don't think John Olerud ever missed a ball. You know, you would you would see some guys struggling in bat. When guys weren't going very good, even batting practice was a chore where, you know, they're hitting ground balls and they're, you know, they're slamming their bat in the dirt. With John Olerud would step in and every ball he hit was hit crisply. You know, he'd line drives to left center, inside pitches hit, hit for home runs during BP. So that, that was, uh, that was fun. And, and, Again, Roberto Alomar, even though he went through some, you know, went through some difficult times later in his career and, and post career, from a pure baseball perspective, um, Roberto Alomar is probably the best five-tool baseball player I've had a chance to watch in my lifetime. He he, he could just do everything. Well, I don't want to put you on the spot too much, Steve, but I do. What are we going to do about Roberto? He's been completely wiped clean of the whole franchise. His name, of course, wiped off the stadium. And the Blue Jays, as an organization, have kind of said, trust us, this is the right thing to do, but not really revealing the whole story, so to speak. Will time allow Roberto Alomar to be reconsidered for what he did on the field, or has what he did off the field, we're told, is so inappropriate that he's just never going to be a part of Blue Jays history going forward? I think in Roberto's case, Andrew, he's he's had his three strikes. I mean, I think what he did spitting at the spitting at the umpire was was despicable you know he was kind of managed to to re uh i guess reinvigorate his, his brand or whatever you want to call it and and uh you know was taken back in the blue jays fold the blue jays i think were very good to him but i i just can't see him and the organization coming back from the from the apparent transgressions that have that have happened uh in his post-playing career and you, you just hope for his sake that he's able to get us life together and 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 get it uh and, and get it figured out but as you know i mean there are just so many cases of athletes who have such a tough time when they retire making that transition into the next chapter of their, of their lives and roberto seems to be a guy who's who's you know really struggling and unfortunately has gone down got down a tough road well let's go back to you and after the jays 93 championship you left canadian press after a brief stop with tennis canada the NHL Players Association was looking for a media person to speak with reporters as they were facing a lockout. You became the PA's first ever media relations manager. And I understand that you actually launched a website for the NHL PA before the NHL even launched a website. <laughs> You've done your homework, Andrew. That's terrific. Yeah, you know, I I got a phone call for Bob Goodenough in, uh, in the summer of 90, 93, no, sorry, 94, and uh, I was working at Tennis Canada. We were kind of around the time when the tennis tournaments were going on in Toronto, Montreal. So I, I honestly thought he was calling me for looking for free tickets for the tournament. And uh, Al Adams, Al Adams, who had been a colleague of mine at Canadian Press, and Al was the national hockey beat writer for CP. Bob said with, that the uh, the PA really needed a media relations person because when uh, during the strike and. In '92, um, they had hired an outside PR agency, and and it come under a lot of criticism for just not being accessible to the media. And Al had put my name forward. I was, you know, a really young communications guy. I'd been at Tennis Canada for like 10, 10 months. Uh, but anyway, he he hired me and got thrown in the fire. Of course, you know, my, when I started, the NHL and the NHLPA were were in a collective bargaining dispute that ended up lasting 104 days. And again, that just you know, there's a whole bunch of stories around that 104 days. And as much as it was stressful at times, and there were some, you know, there were some sleepless nights and even sleeping in my office, um, 
is still one of the greatest experiences of my of my professional career and really set me up for the next eventually becoming sports editor of the Globe and Mail and, and running uh, the Yahoo Canada Sports property because uh, Bob had his flaws, but the one thing he, he did do is he really helped me understand and, and learn and, and be engaged in the business side of sports. And that was something I hadn't done a very good job of as a sports writer. And because of that, and, and you know, under, starting to read about franchise values and understand a collective bargaining agreement and, and licensing deals and broadcast rights, all that knowledge would really serve me well over the next 20 years of, of my career, including getting a chance to do some work at the score for a couple of, a couple of years as, as a sports business analyst for the network, network there. So I'll always be uh, grateful to Bob for that. And yeah, on the website, we decided when the World Wide Web became a thing in, what, 95 or 96, and we heard, heard that the NHL was, was racing to be, uh, to be the first pro sports league to have a website. Bob said, "Hey, talk to our IT guy and I." And I said, "Hey, guys, we we're gonna we're gonna beat. Uh, we get, we need to beat the NHL." So we worked with an outside company, and uh, the website was basically I I wrote we we had a little template Andrew, and it was called Player of the Day, and I would write 250 words on a player, and we had a link. We, we set up player pages for everybody. It would include a link to the player page. And I think we, I, I can't remember how much we beat the NHL by it, but we, yeah, we had an NHLPA.com was, was up and running. And that was a pretty, uh, you know, a very basic website compared to what you, you see today. But uh, there, there was a source of pride that basically two of us with us, with the help of a couple of other guys with a, a small third party company had a website up and running on the, uh, on the World Wide Web in a very short period of time. Well, as you know, it's so interesting how these experiences carried forward to your future you rejoined Tennis Canada for three years and you were handling the what has become the Rogers Cup tournaments in Toronto and Montreal. But then in 2000, you became sports editor at Canada's national newspaper, The Globe and Mail. And then you served time as editor of The Globe's sports website. Fast forward to 2010, Yahoo calls you. You are now the managing editor of Yahoo's Canadian sports property. It's interesting, Steve, to me that print content used to lead and was you know posted to the internet after it got printed. But now the internet was breaking stories. So this must have been an incredible experience for you to go from the Globe and Mail paper, Globe and Mail online, to Yahoo. Yeah, I'd, I'd become a convert to digital. I think the NHLPA experience, Andrew, and then uh, Tennis Canada, we made the web a priority and invested resources. And I was I was heavily involved in, in uh, TennisCanada.com and providing live coverage of the tournaments and hiring writers to write stories around the tournament. Uh, so when I got to the Globe, even when I got to the Globe in 2000, you know, there was still a feeling where writers didn't want, to, you know, they didn't want their scoops to, to be on the website because they thought that was a second a second tier property. And, and it always it was about the newspaper. And and so there was a real culture change. And I'll, I'll never remember, uh, never forget, uh, become acquaintances with, with Mike Lisko uh, during the World Cup of Hockey 1996. The NHL and the Players Association had brought Mike into Salston Corporate Partnership. And uh, so Mike and I worked closely together. And when Mike was about to get hired as the uh, CFL commissioner, you know, in 2000, 2001, whenever it was, he tipped me off that somebody else was onto the story and wanted to let me know so we could get it up, up first. And again, it was a bit of pulling teeth with our people to, to write that story on globemail.com and be first. But I think, you know, over time, guys got it and they understood that 
you know, radio was the most immediate form back then, uh, medium to get to get news out there. And writers started to understand that you could break stories on the web, and it still didn't take away from what happened happened in the newspaper. And I would say again, people like uh, like Neil A. Campbell and and Eddie Greenspan of the Globe and and others were advocates and and saw the digital world coming. And that's why when I stepped down as sports editor in two thousand and eight, it was. You know, there was an opening at that time to do some digital work uh, for Globesports.com. Um, I thought maybe if I got some technical experience, that might, you know, that would serve me well with my next job. And also a sports editor, I kind of felt like the coach of a hockey team. I, I felt that maybe uh, the players, the reporters and the copy editors had started to tune me out a bit. I was probably getting a little bit fed up, fed up with them, but we got through some pretty significant changes at the Globe too, and, and I, I didn't have the, the staff support that I'd had when I started the job in 2000. So it was a good time to step down. And that year working on the website, when Yahoo came calling, they were looking for a junior, basically just a junior person to program the site. Um, I interviewed with a couple of people there and they, they said, hey, we, you know, we, we've changed our mind. We'd like you to come in and, and create a Canadian sports team and uh, and have a real dedicated Yahoo Canada Sports that rivals what Yahoo Sports was doing in the U.S., which was at that time groundbreaking, and, and Yahoo Sports was just such a great journalistic endeavor at, at that point. So I, I left the Globe in 2009, uh, created a team, and again, going to the Olympics was always something on my on my own bucket list. So to be in Vancouver in 2010 was just a just an amazing experience. And of course, uh, the big rivalry and the big gold game, Canada versus USA. I think you have some good memories from that whole specific game. Yeah, that was a, that was a fun night in a, in a couple of respects, Andrew. I, I wasn't at the game because obviously that was a hot ticket for media credentials. And so Yahoo had rented a house in Kitsilano. So there were, I think, five or six of us living in this house, including Greg Wyshynski, who at that time was the editor of the Puck Daddy blog for, for Yahoo, just... One of one of my one of my favorite people ever in in the business, and uh, uh, you know, not surprisingly, Greg's gone on to do great things, and now is a kind of a five tool guy for for ESPN as a as a hockey writer and, and broadcaster and, and analyst. But that gold medal game, um, I sat in a sat in the house, the lone Canadian, and five five Yahoo people had been in Whistler covering the skeleton and, and bobsled events and the skiing events up in Whistler come down and they were sitting in the house with me watching the game. So when uh, Parise scored to send the game into overtime, of course, the American guys were going crazy. And I'm an old school journalist. I don't, you know, I don't cheer for anybody, Andrew. And even, even if it's Canada, the U.S., I'm, I'm still, you know, still trying to be an impartial journalist. And so, anyway, sure enough, Crosby scores the golden goal, and the <laughs> you can the American guys are all like they're swearing and cursing, and they left the house and went to a bar within like two minutes of the of the goal happening. I'm sitting there in this living room in this uh, rented house in Kitsilano by myself. But the other cool thing about that night is there was a a live chat forum called Cover It Live that we had started using for the Memorial Cup and and NHL playoffs and different sporting events. And that night, you know, it was kind of almost like the early stages of that second screen experience where, you know, we knew people were watching games, but they were checking Twitter on their phone and Cover Live was another application. And at, at the peak of that gold medal game, we had 270,000 people engaged on a Cover Live uh, forum talking to me and Wyshynski and 
Ryan Lambert, who was writing for uh, for Puck Daddy at the time, and Sean Leahy and D- Dmitry Chesnikov. And that was just such an amazing thing to, you know, see that millions of people are watching this hockey game. At the same time, you've got almost 300,000 people in- engaged in this forum talking about the refereeing or chirping, which, you know, chirping the Puck Daddy guys in the U.S. about the Americans falling behind. And so that was, uh, again, I would say that was one of the highlights of my career, that, that, whole, that whole night from, uh, you know, obviously being in the city where, where one of Canada's greatest sporting moments ever happened, but then as a journalist, just seeing that, that engagement and those dynamics of play. What an eye-opener for you. I mean, 2010, you were way ahead of the curve, Steve, and that, uh, as, as I can see why that would stick with you, because today it's, as you know, quite common to have these second-screen, third-screen events when we're watching things. It is interesting to me that you still have your hands in traditional newspapers. You write a regular gaming industry column for the Toronto Star. Yeah, so the Star column actually ended ended about a year ago, Andrew. And and what happened was we had um, when Mark started the parlay, um, our first client was North Star Gaming, and so we'd had conversations with the Star people if we knew they were gonna the owners were gonna create this sports book, and so Mark suggested well, we should talk to the Star and have you have you write up. Uh, write a weekly column and at that point we had started the uh the parlay newsletter which we we've since rebranded to gaming news canada so we talked to wayne parish who was at the start at the time and wayne thought that was a great idea and dave washburn the sports editor was on board so i i wrote that column for a year and it was it, it, you know I, it was great on a personal level because it got me you know it was really neat to get to see my byline newspaper and, and like you andrew i still love the print paper, um, you know, Julie and I get, we get the Toronto Star on the weekends. We love getting our coffee first thing Saturday morning and sitting on the couch and, and sharing the sections of the of the Star. But last year, um, the ownership of the column kind of moved from the Star to, to North Star Bets to their website. And there was just some editorial conflict there because obviously North Star Bets is competing with, with the DraftKings and FanDuel's and points bets and all these operators in the space now. And it just there was just two uh we had a couple of couple of situations where i was being given scoops by other operators and there was some discomfort with some of the higher ups at north star gaming about me writing about it you know a com- really a competitor and uh so we just mutually agreed that, that it wasn't going to work uh for me to continue writing the writing the column and and uh, and to be honest too that the the newsletter had become a bit of a runaway train on its own i mean i i was uh writing two nether, new, two newsletters a week and thursday newsletter it turned into about you know four to four to five thousand words on thursdays and the tuesday newsletter as this industry opened up and there was more and more news all of a sudden the tuesday newsletter went from writing you know 500 words to two thousand words on tuesdays uh, and then doing, you know, doing this, uh, we do these LinkedIn audio sessions every Thursday that we, that we now produce and do a podcast. And I was quite happy to have that the star column taken off my plate. But again, very incredibly grateful to Dave Washburn and, and Patrick Holt at the Star for giving me the opportunity to do that. Those, this, those two guys were great to work with, the sports editor, deputy sports editor. And I think the, the column also helped give uh, Gaming News Canada more profile as well. If you're enjoying this Toronto Legends interview, please check out the more than 100 additional episodes available anytime. We got Anders Hedberg, Elvis Stoiko, Bob Ray, Basil Donovan, and Evan Solomon. So many great behind-the-scenes stories directly from the Toronto Legends themselves. 
All episodes available 24-7, 365, wherever you get your podcasts. Well, as you know, Steve, today you are fully immersed in the world of sports gambling. I really need a Gambling in Ontario 101, or Ontario Gaming for Dummies. Let me give you a little background, and then I'm going to unleash you. The past was Sports Select, ProLine, basketball infamously removing ProLine as a condition of the Toronto Raptors getting a team. The present is a new body called iGaming, Ontario's regulated online gaming industry, effectively opened for business just over a year ago in April 22. Based on changes to the criminal code, we've all been bombarded by these ads on TV, my phone, radio, everywhere. And the future of gaming in Ontario is presumably a consolidation of what seems like an endless number of sports books. We've got athlete endorsement issues. Maybe the rise of esports is next. So past, present, future, there's a lot to unpack. Can you give us a quick kind of primer on gambling in Ontario? Yeah, I'll try I'll try to give you the Sparks Note version, Andrew. And yeah, before before twenty twenty one, from in terms of sports betting, the only legal betting was on parlay betting. So, you know, if you were living in Ontario, you would go down to your your Max Milk or Quick K or the gas station and get your pro line ticket and and pick three three games at night, and and that's that's how you uh, you won and, and lost as a as a sports better. At the same time, and again, you know, people when people talk about sports betting, a lot of a lot of people talk about like this is new, and sports betting had been around for the better part of twenty twenty five years because you had all these gray what they called gray market operators. So, you know, the bet three sixty fives of the world, bet waves, and and other sportsbook operators, they had licenses in places like the Isle of Man or Malta or Gibraltar, um, where there were where there were regulated gambling commissions, or in the case of Sports Interaction, which was run by the Mohawk Council of Kahnawake in, in Quebec. And so those operators were out there and, and they were running they're called gray because they weren't, you know, they weren't quite legal because they had licenses, but on the other hand, it was a little bit sketchy on whether or not they were legal in Canada. So people were betting with those those operators, when the government amended the criminal code in 2021 to uh, to allow for legal single event sports betting, which meant now that you could bet on you know the Leafs Tampa, you could bet on one game, you could bet on Mitch Marner to have more than four and a half shots against Tampa. It o- just opened the door to the entire betting landscape. Ontario was the only province, uh, the Doug Ford government, they had talked going back to 2019, that they wanted to have a regulated gaming market at some point. And so the the criminal code amendment, the timing lined up where Ontario decided they were going to have a very robust bar- market and open up to, to, to anybody, um, as long as you went through an, an application process and paid fees. And and the, the motivation behind that is because there is tax revenue tied now where every bet that you make in Ontario with a regular operator is a 20% Twenty percent tax on that, and the Alcohol and Gaming Commission of Ontario, which regulates that industry, they they created a subsidiary called iGaming Ontario to actually do the agreements with the operators. So when we talk have this conversation today, Andrew, you have forty five legally operating operators in Ontario uh, running about 80, 80 websites. That opened up a bit of a Pandora's box. We were coming out of a pandemic, so obviously media companies were starving for ad for ad revenue, and and sports books present that opportunity. And you know, sports leagues who, funnily enough, 
10 years ago at Poo Poo Sports Betting and, and, and appeared at Congress in, in the U.S. and on Parliament Hill to say that, you know, legal sports betting would, would corrupt their leagues and that as soon as those laws were overturned, all of a sudden they were on board because they saw the pot of gold that was sitting there for them. So not surprisingly, we've seen, you know, MLSE has, if you watch a Leafs game, MLSE probably has half a dozen sports betting and gaming operators advertising their their products on, on dash, dashboards or on commercials. We've seen what TSN's done through their relationship with FanDuel and and Sportsnet with the various relationships they they have with sportsbooks. So it's been kind of a mad a mad rush. Um, I think you know just covering the industry, Andrew. I think it will settle down at some point. You, and you talk to people who've been around the industry a lot longer than I have. They they expect the same thing will happen to. You talk about consolidation. We're, you're going to see that happen. We know that. Uh, Points bet. It was reported last week that the points bet's looking to sell off their their North American business, which would include on Ontario. So we'll see what happens there. And then we do have a pretty good sense that we know. Well, we know that other provinces are, have seen what's going on in Ontario, and and we expect that other Ontario other provinces will follow Ontario's lead at some point because those provinces right now they're still operating under the old regime where it's basically the lottery corporations are running their their sports betting and eye gaming just one last thing andrew for your for your audience and for yourself is that you know ontario it's not this isn't sports betting represents a, a fraction of of the revenue that they take in it's, it's actually the online casino and online poker that the eye gaming the true eye gaming component that's what's really attractive and so if you talk to industry insiders, they'll tell you that that was an important piece for the AGCO to, to legalize not just sports betting, but iGaming as well. Because what we're seeing in the U.S. right now is I believe there are only six states that have legal iGaming. And it's been really hard for other states with politi- to get politicians on board with opening up online casino. That's, that's a priority for the Amer- American Gaming Association, which is a lobbyist group, the advocate, advocacy group for the operators. But it's been a real struggle to get those other states to to accept iGaming in, on the, in the same vein of sports betting. Well, you read my mind. I was going to ask you about casino versus sports gambling, and I want to make sure I understood you right. It sounds like you're saying sports gambling is kind of the early wedge, so to speak, to open up for the much larger opportunity with Casino gambling, is that correct? Yeah, and I think that's, you know, the advertising, and, and again, I'm sometimes guilty of this because of my background where we get fixated a bit in the newsletter with, with sports sports betting. But yeah, sports betting is kind of the, uh, you know, the shrimp cocktail or the Caesar salad, and, and uh, it's the it's the slot, playing the online slots and those other games, that's, that's the entree, so... You know, the, there was a book out this week that released the results, and I think six percent of their revenue was coming from uh, sports betting. So that gives you some context for how that fits. Great overview. I didn't realize that at all. I did want to dive into the sports gambling portion, actual sports betting versus fantasy sports betting. I don't hear about fantasy as much anymore. I used to hear about it all the time. Yeah. So there's um. Fantasy is kind of it's it's not happening right now because um, big players like Draft DraftKings uh, on, the rules with Ontario is it's, it's called liquidity. So essentially, if you're a player, fantasy player in Ontario, you can't legally play against players from Alberta. Um, so the fantasy sports thing is very convoluted right now, and there, there's an organization called the Fantasy Sports and Gaming Association. 
And you may have crossed paths at one point uh, with Digger Turnbull, and, and Digger's been involved with, with fantasy sports for for thirty years. Digger sits on the board of the FNSGA, so they're they're working closely and and working with the AGCO to try to um, to try to find a solution so that it's worth the while of fantasy sports operators to do business in in Ontario. And it's, uh, part of the issue too is a lot of fantasy sports companies, Andrew, are very small operations. And under the current, the way the market's set up right now, is those companies would have to pay a hundred thousand dollars every year to have their license renewed. Well, for some operators, a hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money. So that's something they're trying to figure out. And liquidity's also been an issue with with online poker, where again, you you know, you and I, if we wanted to play play poker, it's, it would be illegal in Ontario right now for us to be playing poker against you know people from the states or people from other other provinces. So again, that's kind of that's where things sit with fantasy, and that's why you uh, you don't hear a lot about it up here. And then you you know, if it's funny, if, uh, good timing for this. Just reading some stories the last couple of weeks in the states, where you know the feeling is that now fantasy sports operators sometimes want to distance themselves from sports betting but I, i'm reading stories where you know columnists are saying that fantasy sports really is no is no different than, than betting i mean people are putting up money and and you know they're 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 betting on beating being another fantasy team and the, there is you know there's a a monetary investment in it so but yeah it's it's uh and, and I'm I'm sure like Yahoo Sports still runs fantasy football and you know so you got to believe there's lots of guys like you and I that are that are doing NFL fantasy pools so people are still doing it it's not like it's completely gone away. Well, there seems to be an endless supply of gambling opportunities and that brings up another kind of current and hot issue is the use of athletes and other celebrities in the advertising and marketing campaigns by sports betting and gaming businesses. Are we faced or are we coming into issues? Are we just asking for trouble? Athletes are humans and fallible. Is it not just a matter of time before a desperate athlete gets compromised and we have our next sports gambling scandal? Are these some of the issues related to having uh, athletes and celebrities be paid sponsors? I would say that there's a couple of, you know, red flags with, with athletes. I mean, to me, the match fixing one is a little bit, is, is, isn't quite as dire because Let's be honest. I mean, most professional sports, uh, professional athletes, are making a lot of money today, and and don't need uh, no don't need to be to fix a match to get an extra fifty thousand bucks or a hundred thousand dollars. Certainly, second tier leagues, and this is where we've seen a lot of match fixing, is in second tier soccer leagues or fourth tier soccer leagues. And remember, I think probably ten years ago there was uh, you know, stories uncovered about a, about a lower tier soccer league in Canada where their their players had, had been, uh, you know, got, got involved with, with match fixing. And the other thing to remember too is usually when match fixing happens, it's happening with uh, with black market operators. It's it's, uh, it's sports books run by organized crime or, or motorcycle gangs or, uh, you know, they're, they're certainly not, they're not regulated businesses. So the bigger thing for me is just, the amount of advertising, there's been real pushback. You're on Twitter, you see it every night. Like I'm watching the Leafs Tampa game last night and everybody's complaining about the number of sports betting ads. And I also think because some of the sports betting content that they've tried to weave in the broadcast, um, I would say there's probably been more failure than 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 victories and uh, or success. And so I think people get sports betting. They don't care if it's sports betting content 
you know, they don't care if it's cabbie talking about the DraftKings big board or, or, a, or a FanDuel commercial. They just put it all in the same bucket and it, it just, it's too much for some, for some people. And, and I would say that's especially too with, with, uh, you know, guys of my, my vintage, um, <laughs> in the sports, in the sports journalism, sports journalism industry, but the athletes, I think there's been to be really blunt, Andrew, I think has been athletes and their their marketing people have just they've kind of just taken a check without really thinking it through and something that i've been beating like a drum on on the podcast and the newsletter since the market opened in ontario is that if you're going to be an athlete former athlete or celebrity and especially a current athlete and and it's i think it's incumbent to your brand to do some responsible gambling messaging and and if you're you know, Mitch Marner, who works, uh, who's an ambassador for Sports Interaction now, there are a lot of young hockey fans. And, uh, you know, Amanda Brewer brought up, who works the Canadian Country Manager for Kinder Group. She was on our Gaming News Canada show last week and talked about, you know, that there was a great story about Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews meeting a young fan who had, who had uh, gone to Tampa to see them play, and they were sitting out that game. And uh, so Matthews and Martyr and the Leafs organized a little meeting with the, with the boy after the game, which is a fantastic story. But it also, you know, it reflects the influence that those players have on on young people. And um, so I've I've argued and and I blame, you know, to me it's shared blame. It's it's the athlete, it's the sports book that that does these deals, and it's also the agent or the marketing representatives for these athletes. They have to they have to have a commercial or an ad with. Austin Matthews saying, Hey, if you're, if you know, if you're gonna, if you're under the age of 18, you shouldn't be, you, you shouldn't be betting. Uh, and if you are, if you are 21 years old and you're betting, you have to be responsible and know that you can get into a rut and there are, re, there are resources available. And the, the best example I can give you, and, and people can go to YouTube is the Mannings, uh, Eli Archie and, uh, Peyton have an endorsement deal with Caesars. The Manning, the the family, they they got on camera and they they did like a forty five second commercial and it was very serious, just talking about gambling responsibly. Really, really well done. We see a bit of it with Points Bet. Points Bet Canada had a campaign around the uh, Canadian Curling Championships and and they they sponsored the Carrie Ederson rink and and Carrie and her team did a commercial on responsible gambling, which was really effective. FanDuel was really good coming out of the gate in Ontario last year, Andrew, where. FanDuel's commercials, they were they were really focused on responsible gambling when the market first launched here. Ben MGM has made a pledge of the last last month or so that their ads are going to be heavily weighted in North America around responsible gambling now. So anyway, you know, it's a long, long-winded answer here, but the AGCO, they they came out two weeks ago and they're they're proposing changes to the advertising standards that that are effectively gonna remove athletes actors musicians um influencers from appearing in ads and uh, again i don't know how you how you have proper oversight over that because especially once you get on social media because it's it's the wild west but i think it's it, it's in response to what what they've seen you know the industry's got to take it upon themselves to uh if, if they want athletes to continue uh, pitching their products, they're gonna they're gonna have to be they're gonna have to change the the way they do it because I think uh, I think they have you know there's been enough backlash where they've obviously forced the AGCO to take uh, to try to take a measure like this. As you note, it is kind of the wild west, and it is going to be interesting to see what happens. I mean, we could do a whole 
episode just on this, but as you're well aware, uh, Jake Paul, who used to be a Disney Channel star, he's now the face of a major U.S. sports book. Government regulators are asking him about, you know, his audience being so young. It's funny that you said it because we're watching the game and I grew up with Cabby. <laughs> I recognize him. I know his stuff. But my 16-year-old was like, why does this guy keep showing up on TV? And I guess that was good. She doesn't know him. She's not influenced by him. He's too age appropriate. But certainly when you talk about Jake Paul, that's a whole different market. I will move on to the, something I want to ask you about, esports betting. I had Bob Hunter on the podcast recently. He is super excited to hopefully be putting the shovel into the ground on a brand new 7,000-seat esports venue slash theater on the exhibition grounds. What is the status of esports betting? Where do you see that heading? Yeah, it still feels like esports betting is young, Andrew, and it's interesting. This week, um, we reported in the newsletter on Ravelry, which is uh, a Toronto esports and sports betting company, but they're they're predominantly, 90% of, of the bets made up Ravelry are on esports. And Stephen Sultz, who's a co-founder and CEO, they've, it's a in, really interesting company, and, and they've done some really cool things on the marketing side. They're not a you know they're not spending a lot of money on television advertising. Uh, they do events. They they have deals with social media influencers to, uh, to to promote their product. And they just announced this week with their latest financial results that they're they're going to be working with Pinnacle, which is another big sports book operator. And Pinnacle, in fact, they offered the first esports bet back in 2010. Pinnacle's going to support a $10 million financing round for, for robbery. So that was, that was uh fairly groundbreaking news. But when you talk to people, it feels like esports is still very early days. And again, interesting on, on our LinkedIn audio show yesterday, Chris Abbott, who's the Canadian country manager for Botano, he was talking about, you know, given some of the things that are going on with sport right now, concerns about concussions and, and, you know, health issues and, and, and the like in, in professional sports that you wonder if, you know, he, he was kind of wondering if there might be more of uh, people moving over to gamers at some point, because you don't have those, you know, physical collisions of people getting injured and, um, certainly a much different generation than you and I, I mean, I, I barely, I think I played a little bit of Pong and that's been about, been about it. Don't, don't ask me to play NHL, NHL 23, cause you'll absolutely kick my derriere, but my art children's generation they're they're gamers they love they love gaming and so i think it's like you know in baseball parlance it's probably it's the first uh it's the top of the first in terms of where esports betting can go i think very good analogy that's great totally out of left field steve i want to ask you about high ally i never had as much fun as watching high ally live in florida i was super impressed with the speed the athleticism there was drama at every point could that sport have a resurgence or is there just too much of a connection to match fixing and organized crime and just too much risk with that whole sport and as a gambling vehicle? Yeah, you know, I haven't heard, I haven't heard high lie. I haven't used that, that sport for ever, Andrew, but again, I think sports, you go through periods of reforming yourself and, and reinventing yourself. And I do think the betting there it does lend itself to niche sports. I mean, one of the most fascinating things since I've started covering this industry was, you know, table tennis became the most bet on sport in Colorado and other parts of the world during the pandemic. And I guess it was because every other league is shut down and people there's not people out there that want to bet on sports that they were all of a sudden betting on table tennis matches in in China and the U.S. and other other parts of of the world. 
you know, I still believe, I, I keep telling my partners at Parlay and, and Homestand that cricket's a, cricket's a sport that fascinates me because when I was living in Caledon the last, last few years, uh, you know, you drive through Brampton on a Saturday to get the groceries to go to the gym, and it, there was a cricket match on at every corner. And I think someone told me before I, I moved up back up to Kincardine that there were 80, 85 cricket venues across the city of Brampton, which is incredible. And and I think cricket, because of the multicultural dynamic, that that's a sport that's going to, I think, get on get on the radar of sports betting operators more. You know, pickleball is another sport that's just absolutely exploded. And I and you know, the one drawback of my job right now, Andrew, is I've I've got friends up here in Concordia who have been bugging me to start playing pickleball, and I'm I'm an old tennis and badminton player, so it's a sport I want to I want to learn and take up at uh, at some point. But pickleball seems to me to be that that's a sport that could uh, really take off with, with with sports better. So so yeah, I think you know again, I think highlight the 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 integrity and the match fixing. I'm sure that's something that that makes it uh, that's a challenge right now. And there's there's such a there's so much to bet on these days. You know, the other thing quickly is is um what's going on with women's sports, right? Like women's sports, it feels like this is the moment where women's sports is going to really take off and, and hit that next level. And that's going to have an impact on sports betting operators as well. So there's just, there's a lot of competition in the marketplace today. Well, as you know, we're just in the first inning on certain aspects, but perhaps for the whole industry, we're really just in the first inning. Because when I can start to bet on pickleball, <laughs> you'll know it's really a big deal. I want to give a shout out to your Parlay Media Group colleague, Mark Silver, who had the excellent suggestion to have you on the podcast. What is the Parlay Media Group and what are you guys working on? Yeah, so we've we've gone through a, a couple of different evolutions, which I think isn't uncommon with, with a startup. We're in a really good place today, I believe, Andrew. Um, Homestand Sports has become kind of our, that's our main, that's that's the crux of the business. Um Kevin Kennedy, who is our executive producer and one of the six partners, has put together uh, a, a great team of young talent. And uh, the thing I'm most proud of being connected with this company is that, you know, I would say the last 15 years of my journalism career were, were really challenging. And it was tough to see newsrooms shrink and, and uh, you know, having to let, let people go and you know, you look at the Globe and Mail. Like when I was at the Globe and Mail, I I had I, I had a staff of uh, twenty five people along with some free, freelance columnists and and great columnists like Lauren Rubenstein and and Tom Tebbin and, and Bob Weeks. And that department has shrunk to two writers today, which is which is really sad to uh, really sad to to see. So we're we're giving opportunities to to journalism and and broadcast graduates to do content. Uh, we have a, a daily show now that James Sherman hosts with some of our some of our uh, young talent called the, the Homestand Show, and uh, there's a streaming service called Sports Grid that just uh, they just brought their streaming service to Canada, so we're doing a daily show there now. Uh, James is the co-host of a soccer show on uh, called Room Four Four Two. And again, we've got some great people there: Sarah Prairia, uh, Albert Bartanian. Uh, Mikey Singh, who does a great job covering Toronto FC for us, and has a bit of a following from from his previous uh, previous stop writing about about MLS and the Toronto soccer team, and we do we do a Saturday morning show now that kind of tees up the the weekend in soccer on on Sports Grid as well in Canada. So that's kind of the bread and butter, and then we're working with four four sportsbook operators right now doing video content for them, and and uh, 
and also doing some social media work and we're, we're, we're having a lot of fun. We, we had a crew in Montreal a couple of weeks ago through our relationship with Bet 99, spending time with George St. Pierre and, and George LaRock. And, and that was, uh, that was fun. And, and Bet 99 has relationships with, with Alicia, Alicia Newman as well, the Olympic pole vaulter. So we had Alicia in the studio a few weeks ago and did a couple of segments with, with her. So we're having, having a lot of fun doing that. And, I kind of, I think we feel right now, Andrew, that, you know, we feel a little bit like the score back in the early days where, you know, there was, nobody thought there was room for another sports media partner or company out there. And the score kind of, you know, they carved their own niche. They they, they were doing something different than TSN and Sportsnet were doing. They were developing young talent that ended up at, uh, you know, eventually ended up at, at those networks and, you know, the, the list of people, I mean, you know, Sportsnet alone, you look at people like the, the Tim McAuliffe, Sid Sixero, Greg Sansoni, uh, Brian Spear, who's a producer on Hockey Night in Canada, and Elliot Friedman, of course. I mean, they're, they're all they're all score graduates. And so I think, you know, if, if we could if we could have the same kind of success the Levy family had with the score, that would be, uh, you know, that, that would be amazing. Uh, that would be a dream come true. And then Gaming News Canada is really just that was that was what kind of got us the parlay name out there in the in the beginning. And kudos to Mark for suggesting that it would be a good idea for us to, to cover the industry just to start learning about it. And for me, it's been uh, it's it's a return to my roots. It's a chance to go back to being a journalist again. Uh, I I really hadn't done a lot of writing since '93 when I left Canadian Press, so I absolutely love being able to write, love, love kind of being my own editor. And I always worry that people at some point are going to get tired of the dad jokes and, you know, the bad, the seventies YouTube music videos and that, but the feedback I've been getting on the newsletter is, and again, I would say the readership is kind of my, you know, my era. They, they love, uh, they love the the irreverent style of the, of the newsletter. They, They like the fact that we're, you know, we're providing good information, but we're also having a bit of fun with the newsletter. Well, as you say, Steve, you're just getting going, but I wonder how you face the challenge of kind of separating church and state, i.e., how do you separate Parlay Media that works for sports books versus your Gaming News Canada industry newsletter? Yeah, it's 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 been pretty easy, Andrew. And, and again, I you know I say with a smile, but I I do remind Mark from time to time. I I use those exact words. I'll send on Slack, church, state, and then it's very clear that uh, that what what I do. I have to thank the partners as well, Andrew, because I think, you know, this, that relationship can be a really slippery slope, but for this, for my newsletter to have credibility as a journalist and people to be able to trust me, um, I have to be separate from the commercial side of, of the business. And, you know, it may get us into trouble one day. I hope, I hope it doesn't because that would probably force me to make a decision on uh, whether or not we, we continue the, uh, the newsletter to be completely, completely candid with you. But I think people in the industry, they, they respect what we're trying to do with Gaming News Canada and, and they, they understand there's another piece of, of the business, but we've, we've worked really hard to, uh, to, to have that separation of church and state. And I really think the rebrand of Game to Gaming News Canada helped us a lot last year. We've we've kind of I would say quad, at least quadrupled our subscription base since we did the re- rebrand last uh, July. And I would say, you know, because I'm I'm old and I've been in the business for forty years, I'm lucky enough. And and there have been 
there are a lot of people working in this industry right now, Andrew, who come from the same background, who come from from broadcasters or sports companies and people with whom I've crossed paths over that 40 years. As I, I think I've developed, hopefully, a, a bit of res- respect and and trust and and uh, and you know, I kind of feel like my my reputation means that the people respect that that I'm going to uh, I'm going to cover the newsletter as a journalist and and that uh, you know that's that's separate with what we're doing with Parlay Media Group on the commercial side. Well, it all sounds great. You've got your live panels on LinkedIn that are now available as well as podcast form. You've got your Gaming News Canada industry newsletter. Steve, where can we best follow you and where can we best consume these products? Yeah, so on Twitter, you can follow me at Stevie Mac Sports, uh, Stevie, S-T-E-V-I-E-M-A-C. We have a at Gaming News Canada on Twitter. And then to be honest, Andrew, I've I've really, I think a lot of us are moving towards LinkedIn. So, you know, I've, I've and again, it's a, it's a function of having been around for so long. I have a lot of connections on on LinkedIn, but I'm always looking for you know to continue building that building that base. And we've actually started putting our Tuesday newsletter on LinkedIn as as well as Substack. So you can certainly find me on on LinkedIn. So please don't be afraid to connect there. I take a lot of pride in in the mentorship that I've I've been able to do later in my career. So a lot of my connections are people who are just starting out in the broadcasting career, or working in the sports industry, and and. Uh, um, I'm always happy and I, I, you know, one of the most satisfied, sat, satisfying things at this point in my life is being able to help young people because people like you and I, Andrew, we were, we were in their shoes at one time. And, and, uh, I certainly remember the people who helped me along the way. Well, that's a great attitude and a great way to close off. Steve, I want to thank you for your time today. It was great meeting you getting to know you and hearing all the interesting things from your career. And I want to wish you uh, continued success going forward. Thanks, Andrew. And again, thanks so much for having me on on uh, on this podcast. It uh, it was a it was a lot of fun, a real pleasure for me. And to the listeners, on behalf of Steve McAllister, I am Andrew Applebaum, saying thanks for listening to this episode of the Toronto Legends Podcast. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Crier Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. 
and Jackie Holawati from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Crier Media Network. <laughs>